0: On March 16th, Robert Aaron Long was having what the police are calling a bad day. He killed eight people and wounded one. Of those eight that died, six were Asian women. Long claimed that his actions were the result of a sex addiction that conflicted with his religious beliefs. Not a full week later, we lost three Hmong sisters to domestic violence and the death of a mixed race Asian woman in California. We've seen our grandparents fighting off attackers. And another mass murder happened to Colorado. It's been an emotional, trying, and overall a horrible week. We put together a special panel to dig into the topic of violence against Asian women. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, Lee, owner of The Other Media Group. This week, we are joined by three Asian women who are powerhouses in community organizing, racial justice defenders, and overall kick-ass sisters.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Uh, My name is Jennifer Nguyen-Moore. I go by she, they pronouns. Um, I'm an environmental justice and social justice activist um, and uh, identify as a VIT woman, and I'm raising an anti-racist child.
2: Hi, my name is Megan Boyle. I am Yonsei, fourth generation Japanese American. Um, My family moved to Minnesota from uh, Minidoka incarceration camp after the war, um, the Japanese side. And I am a disability service provider and I also do organizing with Take Action Minnesota. And I am raising a six-year-old daughter who I'm also trying to teach to be anti-racist and badass.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Linda Herr. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm the executive director of Asian American Organizing Project, working uh, for Leading with Youth for Youth. We do a lot of civic engagement and community organizing, um, utilizing the gender justice and racial justice framework. Um, I'm also second-generation Hmong American and also queer.
0: Thank you so much, each of you, um, for taking the time um, Today we had a larger panel um, ready to go. Unfortunately, two of our our uh, sisters cannot be here with us. Uh, I'm not going to ask you guys how you are. <laughs> just I'm just not. But I do want to ask: How are you coping with the with the recent violence against Asian women and, and
3: the Asian community as a whole? Uh, for me, definitely, I've been having conversations with my, like my pods, my support group, my friends. Um, And that's been helpful to process. I think when um, being witnesses or experiencing, um, just like harm, right? Being able to have a support group to talk and process and like making time to reflect really has helped me um, ground myself. And so I've been talking with my partner um, also having conversations with my sisters and talking with uh, my colleagues, my community organizers um, first, because sometimes we forget as organizers that we are like, wait, we must get into action, right? And so just since the pandemic, um, like my my team, we've been slowing things down and really focusing on how do we take care of ourselves first. Um, and then from there, we can move to like, being able to consider the key actions, right, that we can do to address the the situations and problems. So
1: yeah, for me, it's it's been really tricky to um, gone through all the different possible emotions all at once. And um, just recently decided, like, you know, I, I need to channel this energy into action, because um, I am an organizer, too. And I really should take time and grieve and, you know, take care of myself. But that also is healing for me, um, to make sure that We're finding ways for people to acknowledge us, especially because I feel like a lot of the Asian American experience is um, invisible and I want to make sure people know about it. And I'm demanding them to talk about it and to, to acknowledge me and to really do something about it. So that helps. But also being with community is also important too. Um, I attended a couple rallies. I saw Megan there too. Um, And just like seeing community there supporting each other and people I hadn't seen for a whole year was really helpful to really see.
2: For me, I think I did a lot of, um, just like mentally blocking everything out over the last year, just all of the anti-Asian attacks and everything. And, um, after the murders in Atlanta, um, friends started to check in on me to see like how I was coping. And that's kind of when I allowed myself to like, fully feel just like everything just like all the grief and the rage and the hurt um and it it really took me a couple of days to like kind of come back to myself almost um to like get through all of that and I really I'm I'm half white so like I really hold a lot of like feelings that I'm like not enough and not like like I'm not like really Asian enough to like have a voice in the Asian community or um, I I hold a lot of like guilt that I don't white people either like plain up don't see me or they can't identify that I'm Asian so it makes me feel a little bit safer moving through the through the world and I hold a lot of guilt around that Um, but I do really like have a lot of fear for like my aunts and my my mom and my uncles. Um, so I've done a lot of talking like with my mom and my sister to like kind of work through some of these emotions that I'm feeling.
0: You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with our special guests. I'm Jennifer Nguyen-Moore. I'm Megan Boyle.
3: I'm Linda Lelazer. Yeah, my
0: husband and I are planning um, just to get away for a little while. But um, I told him, I said, I'm not leaving the hotel. <laughs> uh, you have to, if we need anything, you're the one, because I'm married to a white guy. So I'm like, you're the one that needs to go out if you want anything. We're, you know, we're going up north and trying and to just, you know, we're getting a place along um, Lake Superior. So it's like, all oh, nice and peaceful. And then I'm like, if, if we need milk, I'm not leaving. You have to be the one to go.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can definitely resonate with that. Um... I haven't gone out for like just for grocery runs and stuff but most of, most part my white husband is my protector and he goes out and he gets stuff for me or like you know goes to places that I feel if I feel uncomfortable he'll go for me and I've only like exclusively gone to Asian places um just cuz I know that's where community is but yeah it's just terrible where like you know we need a way to release this energy and sometimes that means going to a cabin or going somewhere outside of The metro area to just detach from it all and then you have to worry about well will that be safe for me because i remember when i would drive all over um, in the summer it was like trump community so i'm like i don't really want to deal with that Mm
0: -hmm. yeah we we went over the summer um over the summer last summer we had gone to a place and we had gotten an airbnb and all the signs outside of the airbnb were trump signs. And I was like, I was really worried. And so, um, and at the time I, we had gone with my family and there are three white guys in our family and we we're like, you guys are the ones. So, and we just gave them a list and They were the ones who had to go get everything because we were we were so scared to leave the property where we were. And I was like, is that a way to spend a vacation in Minnesota, you know, is to be afraid to leave the house and are thankful that you have a white, uh, white husband and white brother-in-laws who are able to, to do that?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it is scary because um, my nieces and sister and my partner, we, we went up North and uh, we had to pass through uh, areas and homes where there were like plenty of Trump signs. And like, even, you know, my young nieces there are nine, 10, right. They're really ah. well aware of this political climate and like the harms and violence and the racism that exists out there. And, uh, being able to make time to talk to them. And like like you said, Lee, like do we need to worry about that where, when we're going on a vacation and spending time with our family? Like, no, we don't, but we have to. We can't, it, we can't, um, you know, we can't go somewhere and feel safe, right? And it's unfortunate. Um, also, like being queer myself, um, you know, it, it is scary being a woman, right? Sometimes we like, even like in our family conversations, um, my partner and I were like, "Do, like, are is it safe to go certain places? Does it seem like do we need a man, right? Do we need a man to be here to protect us or to scare people off? Like, those are like ridiculous questions, right? To, like that we even even entertain, right? But it's those are real; those fears are real, right? Um, but you know, we usually we usually." Um, address that by really talking about those fears and being like, you know, what, what can we do to protect ourselves? Right. Um, and I think that that's where, like, I don't want to live in fear. You know, I don't want my nieces, my partner and us, we have to live in fear. Right. So what can we do to be able to protect ourselves and make sure that, you know, the people around us are also safe or can play, you know, a certain role. It's, you know, it sounds, um, it sounds, um, ridiculous at some at some point but I think it's so real that we have to talk about you know safety plan
2: yeah we have um my husband is also a white man from Alabama and so like obviously during the pandemic we weren't going to be visiting his family but um even before that we definitely had conversations about like safety like is it safe to go we'd be driving um is it safe to drive through all of those Southern states? Like, will people be able to identify me as an Asian person? Um, Will, will our daughter be safe? Um, What will, what kind of things will our daughter hear people say? Because people are just like comfortable with being really openly racist down there. Um, And so we haven't gone in a really long time because we don't know how safe we would be. And it's really hard having those conversations with my in-laws because they don't like understand because they're also like Trump people. So they don't see like, they don't see color, So they don't see that that is a part of my identity and my daughter's identity. And they don't see that as any, anything. So, yeah. And
0: when we say, you know, we're worried when we see Trump signs, it's, be- it's, it, it, I mean, a lot of the, Increased violence, I think we can attribute to the anti-Asian sentiments that came out of the White House, you know, uh, calling it the China virus or the Kung flu. Um, so I, I don't think that we're saying all Republicans are racist, but we're saying that when we see those the signs and the, and the flags, it worries us um, because we don't want, well, we're on vacation to ha- have to run into somebody who's going to yell at us for just, just for existing.
3: Yeah, we can't help but, you know, make those connections, right? And um, I mean, with the recent, you know, like the heightened violence in, against Asian, right? Um, obviously, it's it's become more visible, right? Like since Trump, we've seen more uh, white people being able to be openly racist and, you know, horrible, Right. part of me feels like that's like there we can point to it right versus before it's sort of um insidious where we can't really name it so i think it's sort of for me where it i can see like the racism the enemy or the harmer right but it's also like dang but i don't want to be experiencing this where um you know what happened on january 6th with (laughs) <laughs> at the white house right or more folks white folks organizing to uh to to harm us right and so it's sort of um like really scary but also a time for us to come together to to name to to say this is the problem it's been existing right it's it has existed uh before trump with imperialism right um the violence against women uh, through war right um, and in this time and place through like the, the Trump, right? It has also allowed for so much uh, white supremacy and white terrorists to, to, to do what they're doing now, right? And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's not okay at all at any point.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've seen the, the increase in the anti-Asian crimes, but like you said, it, this isn't anything new. Uh, we talked on counter stories a few weeks back about uh, the crimes against elders, you know, and now we're we're looking at all these crimes against Asian women. and the Aaron Long, who was the guy who shot everybody, he said that it was because of his his fetish, right his his sexual addictions and I hated it. Like, I hate that. I, sometimes I hate that I'm married to a white guy because I don't want to feed into that stereotype of like Asian women marrying like white guys. And especially because my husband's older. So we took a trip to Southeast Asia. And like, you know, yes, we st- stood out like a sore thumb. But I also felt like there was a lot of, um, especially a lot of, the, I visited a lot of Hmong folks while I was there who were just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're Hmong American. So you married the white guy, you know, and I, I hated feeding into that. Um, but we do see. I mean, I think we all probably know somebody who exclusively or almost exclusively dates white women, like a white guy, right? Like we had names for them in high school. <laughs> um, so, I mean, how how does that play, and what are the historical contexts even of that in in our country?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure what to say about that. But um, <laughs> being married to a white guy. It, it, it can be you know I have the same fears too like you know people are people gonna think oh I married him or like we married each other because of whatever um but I think to be honest there's a lot of educating and like a lot of um patience on my part to really extract all of that because I think we don't learn about oh, hypersexualization of Asian women um that's not really talked about so like to to really like take the time to explain like, oh, what you said was really harmful because in the past, this is how women in Vietnam were treated during the war or things like that. And, you know, it's I take the time because I love my husband, you know, but there's a lot of people that are not learning this um, who are feeding into the quote unquote yellow fever and all of that. So um, it just um to me, it's like one person at a time and ho- hoping that he would share that with his friends or. Really working to build that knowledge um, collectively,
2: I think there's also something to be said about um, white evangelicalism and how it um, how purity culture and evangelicalism has really affected uh young people i'm like an ex evangelical sort of um and so I know like there's so much pressure to um like not have thoughts about sex or not have lust in your heart or not um have sex before you're married and all of that like gets really like internalized and you hold it in and you don't want to be and so then you see anything that like causes you to quote stumble as like a barrier that you have to um break down and so I think um I think that there's really like deeply ingrained um thoughts and feelings about like that purity culture that are like just perpetuated within the evangelical community. Well, I'm not married to a, a white guy or a white woman, but my partner's
3: Filipina and I'm Hmong and um I think that <laughs> I think that and she's also um an immigrant and um became a citizen probably like 10 years ago. So she spent a good chunk of her life living in the uh, the islands of Philippines. Um, but I think that being in a, like, inter, like, Asian ethnic, like, relationship, right, um, what I've come to also realize, because my parents have met her, I've met her family, and she's met my family, and, um, I think some things that st- stood out to me is how how have we as Asian Americans or refugee immigrants, right, background, how have we actually talked about race, right, where we can understand it in our lives when we marry someone outside of our race or ethnic right, background and where that leads to a lot of stereotypes and assumptions and um, and that can lead to, you know, like the education part, right, the, the like, I... The like I don't see color, or I'm not a racist, or I, I believe that certain Asian communities are below ours, right? Like s- these classes, you know, um, assumptions, right? It 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 impacts your relationship, right? And so um, I tried to have like last year, um, I I've had conversations around Black Lives Matter with my parents, right. And last year was the first time I actually had an emotional conversation with my dad. And so, you know, I'm sharing this because like how how often or how can we have these race-related conversations with with uh, the people that we love and care, right? And how hard it can be. Because I was saying, I was talking all of this in Hmong, right? And being second gen, who uh, have retained certain amount of vocabularies, right? And... Uh, Is more in English, right? It's it's really difficult and challenging, right? But um, but I think that those are those are the pressure points, right? That I need to to massage out, and so that I can be a little bit more not super tense and anxious, right? Where I can build out more people in my family or, or community to be um, uh, compel, right, and committed to like ending like the violence or talking about around race related things I even got like my best friend that of of 20 years that we haven't talked to each other for probably quite some time off and on like she's like talking about this and she had shared with me that um her and her partner like she's more vocal but her partner like they're afraid of speaking out because they live where majority of white people are in his field of work is majority of white people. So like she's afraid of talking or her husband because of losing their job or businesses, right? And those are real, you know, but we can start where we feel safe, right um, and build more um, understanding of what our experiences are, yeah, and and then being able to move from there.
0: You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with our special guests. I'm Jennifer Nguyen-Moore. I'm Megan Boyle.
3: I'm Linda Lelazer.
1: Yeah, Linda, I completely agree with that. I think, to be honest, I, I I am scared to have those kind of conversations with my family because I'm worried where that would lead. Um, and I should be able to organize my own family, but I'm better at organizing people I don't know, which, you know, I'll have to work on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, you know, I I haven't shared this with many, or I guess I shared it on Facebook, but I did have an incident just that week of um, the shooting the day after, you know, I wanted to get some fresh air, wanted to figure out ways to grieve. Uh, and so my family decided to go to a park in Minneapolis and, um, you know, I was apprehensive because, you know, I don't want to really like it, interact with people who might harm us, obviously. Um, and I was like, well, my white husband's here. My child's here. We should be fine. It's it's not like at the height of the um, time where people would come. Uh, and my daughter was sick during that week. And so she was like upset, didn't want to go, didn't take her nap. So she was a hot mess. But we were like, let's just go get some fresh air. So she was you know, yelling and stuff as we took her out of the car, this white woman started yelling at us from a hundred feet away saying like, why are you kidnapping that child? What are you doing? What is your problem? I'm going to call the police. I'm recording you. And then she started recording us on her phone and called the police. And, you know, I was like pretty close to like popping her face, but I know that that wouldn't have been good for my daughter to see. So I was like, let's just keep moving. Uh, my husband's like, yep, she's calling the police right now. And I was like, okay, okay when they come, you're going to have to talk to them because I don't know what's going to happen to me or what I would say. And I hate the police. Sorry. I have friends who are police, but I I do not feel comfortable when the police are near me. My body like freezes. I, you know, it's fight or flight mode and I'm fighting. Um, so we walked over to where we wanted to go. There were three squad cars that decided to come and check out the the incident Um I was so lucky to have friendly cops like just under like they had empathy or something. But they were like, it looks like there's no problem. You know, she was OK by that time. And they were like, you know, I'm sorry that we had to come out here. And I was like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't get tased or like handcuffed or, you know, something. And I was lucky. And the lady didn't have any accountability because she was already she already ran away like they didn't even talk to her so I'm just like I can't even go to a park to just like walk around and like you know decompress without having to worry about this and you know I know our, our BIPOC community is experiencing this every single day and we really need to figure out how how to address this so like I wanted to say when we were talking about Republicans like it's not just a political thing. It's a lot of people who have implicit biases who don't realize how harmful their language or actions are that really need to check themselves before they determine. Do I need to call the police? Any of that? Like mm-hmm. you really need to consider the pain that it caused. And she does, didn't even understand how that could impact my four year old, but my four year old understands racism more than the white population. You know, like that's just
0: ridiculous. I mean, they just it's, it's so sad, and, and I, I live near a park in St. Paul, too, and I, I find myself, like, watching the Asian people when they walk through to make sure they're safe if they're alone. <laughs> you know, when I'm out walking my dog with my husband. Now I only walk my dogs when my husband's with me. And so, like, I find myself watching, especially the elders who tend to walk alone, and just making sure that I'm watching them while they're in my eye, eye line to make sure they're safe. And I, I said this the other day, I was just like, I'm, kind, I'm, you know, my I lost my grandfather just a few years ago and I don't want to cry now. See, I'm going to cry now. And I was just saying, I'm so happy that he's not alive to see this right now because he was one of those guys who he was restless. He never stayed home. He was always out walking um, or he would just go to the store and even though he only had one thing to buy, you know, look at everything in, at Target, like, you know, um, and I would just be worried all the time if, if he was alive because of, of, he's just that kind of guy who always wanted to be out and about. And I hate that feeling of thinking, oh, I'm so glad that my grandpa's not alive right now. You know, like, I never want to think that,
1: right? The other thing I wanted to tie back, I'm sorry, I so I got so, like, heated because it was just last week. But I called my mom to tell her because I was just like, I am so mad. And she was like, I was at a St. Paul park and this woman called the police on mom, myself and your dad, too. And I was like, wait, when did this happen? Like, I was so upset. Like, we need to report this. She was like, it was two to three years ago. And I don't walk around the lake anymore. So I'm like, this is so messed up that we like, you know, I, I, I was mad that my mom didn't tell me because, you know, we have to build that courage to share. And I'm really glad that she did tell me after I shared my vulnerable experience, but we really need to be reaching out to our, our community. And like, even though it's terrible and we don't really want to talk about it, we have to talk about it because we don't, know if anyone else is experiencing it. And we need others to know that we have their support.
2: So how do we even begin to like have these conversations with people who like don't see us and don't like acknowledge that our experiences are real? Because like I've tried to have conversations with like former friends who are white who just don't, like they they don't think my experience is real. They don't get it. So like, how can we even start the conversation with anyone that like that. Like, that's like really where I'm stuck.
0: I know that for me, I've been fortunate, like, well, I like haven't left my house. I don't leave my house unless it's absolutely necessary. And then when I do leave, I try to get everything done in one day. So to run all my errands in one day, Um, I haven't seen my husband's family in over a year. Uh, Mostly, they mostly live um, not in the metro area. Um, but I have these conversations over texts with them, you know, and I, I get a lot of after the shootings in Georgia, my sister-in-law texted me and she said, you know, I just want you to know that I'm thinking of you and I love you. And really that went, that went so far for me. Um, but how, how about for you guys? How, how do we start these conversations?
3: For me, um, in my organizer experience, um, I've learned that a lot of of energy that I put in people who don't see me or care or would invest in time, right? Like those wouldn't even be on my priority. Um, And it's hard, especially if like, if like you, you, maybe that's all everyone, right? In in your space, right? Like who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you have then? being queer and Hmong and young person coming back to Minnesota, I was searching for a community, and for a long time there wasn't community. I had to leave, and and like really understand who I who I was as a young person, what it what it meant for me to be queer, uh, what it meant to be a Hmong woman who left home, and that it was not okay at all. Um, and I've really found my courage and my and who what are my purpose what's my purpose, right? Um, and through that journey, um, it allowed me to be in like become an organizer, actually. Like I started to join space that to meet like-minded people, right? And at most of those times, there there may be people who are similar, but they're but they're, there's there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, right? So I Have done um, through that journey, I've found people that who have been with me in this journey for years. And those are the people that um, will continue to advance like what our vision of a better community is. Right. And so I I spend a lot less time worrying about the people who will just not get it and start finding people who will who who's looking for me. Right. Who 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 gets it. Um, I think that will become, like, really fruitful. Uh, you, you'll feel more empowered. Um, the work that you can build, right, can can grow exponentially versus, like, uh, kind of drowning yourself with people who don't care and continue to, like, gaslight you or discredit you or not see you as a person. And, um, yeah, I think it's okay to, like, um, divorce ourselves, right, from friends and people who don't get it because you'll find better friends, We'll get it. Um, and, and yeah, it's scary. But I think, you know, anytime when change happens, it, it's scary. But I'm definitely in a better place with better people.
0: You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with our special guests. I'm Jennifer Nguyen-Moore. I'm Megan
3: Boyle. I'm Linda Lelazer.
0: I've heard, I've heard that response, Linda, as far as being a young Queer among person, um, I've heard I've heard that from a lot of people who just left Minnesota and was like, I can't, you know, I can't be here and have started communities elsewhere. That's a whole nother show. So I'll come back for that. <laughs> yes, I I was gonna
1: echo what Linda said. Um, I was honestly fixated with who are the white people that are going to like send me a message and tell me that they love me and care for me, and so upset when I realized not the people that I expected to reach out didn't reach out. And so I had, I had like marinated in that for a week. And this week I'm just like, who cares if they didn't write to me? I, they, you know, I should be focusing on the people that actually did spend the time to contact me or like ask me if there's anything that I needed um, rather than focusing on the negative energy. And I'm just checking my surroundings and making sure that I bring those people in and, weed the other people out um so that it's it's a healthier mindset for myself and I don't really have to worry about it because I'm already carrying so much we all are carrying so much we don't need added stress or negativity I think also I think oh go ahead I was gonna say it's the job of the white people to get their people so (laughs) I'm not doing that (laughs) job I don't have time yeah
0: I mean, what 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 would you what would you say to to folks who are listening, non Asian folks, uh, or you know, non Black folks, when when you know stuff hits the fan? <laughs> um, I you know, a lot of times I didn't know what to say, you know. So, what advice would you guys have um, for folks who are thinking, I have Asian friends, I have Asian you know girlfriends, what do I say? How do I how do I make that that how do I reach out? Right?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, just as if a loved one has died that has been connected to me personally, like people would connect with me and say, like, how are you? What do you need? Like, that's the same thing. We're we're grieving. Even though we don't know who this these people are, we don't have a personal connection with them. We are living their similar experiences. And so we're going through the same emotions of losing a loved one. So just imagine what that would be like if you were a person that lost someone. A simple text to acknowledge me or, you know, like ask me if I need anything. Um, bigger steps could be demand your organization to denounce anti-racism towards Asian folks and racism and white supremacy in general is a good start. And I know it's been a week, but it's never too late to denounce that. Um, that's like the least you can do, uh, and then also be a good bystander. Don't don't um, let your implicit biases or explicit biases get to you. You need to question that and also take action when you see something happening. If if you saw me getting yelled at from a lady, like get involved. Ask me, do I need help? Are you do you feel safe? It's very simple. Just just make just do something. Just stop talking about it. Do something.
2: I would say, like, echo everything that Jennifer said, but also stop reading White Fragility. Just stop. Don't do it. Stop. Like, if you want to read books, read books that are, like, by Asian authors or by Black authors or by, you know, stop reading White Fragility. Just stop. And never, ever talk to me about whether my experience is real or just in my head. (laughs) like never ever. Right? I mean how how many
0: times have we heard like oh you're reading too much into that person's actions or that person didn't mean it
2: that way. Yep, exactly. Just yeah, just listen and be there and be present and like actively reach out and actively listen and like make sure that I'm okay and that your Asian friends are okay.
3: I would say like you know, starting your journey to fully commit in being an anti racist, right? Um, also, um, like intervention is also key, right? But sometimes folks might not know. So there are, you know, trainings out there around intervention, like Asian American Events and Justices has been hosting bystander intervention. Um, also, committing yourself to ending um, misogyny, right? And violence against women. Um, I think that those are really key, and another piece that maybe, um, I mean, we we like intersectionality, right? Race, class, gender, faith has such you know, like everything to do in the way in the ways that violence and harm has has happened and 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 continue to like grow in our community, right? And so being able to just learn about power and privilege and, um, where you, where you fit and where you're either you're impacted or you benefit from it. Right. Uh, sometimes I think that folks, um, feel that when we talk about race, um, it's like race baiting and all these things. Right. Um, but I, particularly in the Hmong community where I've seen these posts or folks talking or hearing from friends that they're, that they're people, that they're, that there, there is no, you know, there is no color, there is no race and we're looking too deep into it. But I also feel like, well, we do, we do talk about race and ethnic, we just sort of are selective, right? And there's a lot of internalized racism really, that's taking place. And so that's where, therefore I think, really committing yourself to being anti-racist, right? Can be those first step and you'll just be on a journey of just Learning so much, so be w- open and welcome to that, but not forgetting that gender and uh, class, right, plays a huge role too um, in the in the violence and harm and heightened right uh, experiences um, since the pandemic and even bef- before the PENDEC pandemic.
0: Yeah, I would just say to folks like uh, we're all connected, right? So our the, the anti Asian violence initiative does not. Take away from the anti-black or the anti-indigenous, right? It's all we're all fighting for anti-white supremacy, and our our fights are connected, um, and our fights to protect our, our sisters right now is is connected, right? I mean, we've seen the domestic violence, we've seen the 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 you know Asian woman stereotype fetish stuff. I mean. We're all connected and so it's important for us to be standing up for each other um, instead of fighting each other. And there's a lot of stuff happening in community. Um, Linda, as as an executive director of the Asian American Organizing Project, I mean, what are you seeing around, you know, organizing that's happening in community to keep these conversations going?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, being able to offer like trainings, right, for people to know how to in- intervene, right, I think, being able to have our community be equipped, be aware, uh, being able to not just talk about the like the violence and harm uh and that and the the problem is all because of Trump, right? Because it's existed even before Trump, right? So understanding like the narratives that are also being told out there and how we understand uh the deep historic roots of oppression and systemic like state violence. Um organizations like holding uh Webinars and training conversations, right, to address this. Being able to talk to government, right, um, like the MDH and um, you know, like elect- elected officials, right, to bring these pressing concerns to them. Them being able to condemn that, right, as leaders in in Minnesota is super um, important, right. It it acknowledges like all of their 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 voters who are Asians, right. It also um, builds, um, uh, like a presence and leads to action where young people particularly, uh, feel that there is hope. Um, there are a lot of conversations and spaces, right, that are led by adults and a lot of adults actually, you know, are, are joining those spaces, but my work at AAOP and our team, um, continues to really lead, you know, from a young youth and young Asian perspective and experience around how do we make sure that youth and young Asian voices are not missing, right? And so I think that while we are responding to this, like going back to the intersectionality, right? How how are we including like women, right? How are we uplifting women in this moment in time? How are we making sure that the people who are not in the spaces, right? Uh, We're doing uh, our own outreach to make sure that their voices are heard, right? So, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, spaces and organizations and leaders taking action, and we need more, right? We need more, especially from, like, um, schools, right? Um, I was just talking to my youth manager, where um, she talked to her youth leaders, and the schools aren't really even doing anything to address the anti-Asian violence, right? And so, what kind of um, leadership and, and institutions are we setting for young people, when though when they go to school every day and that's like a good chunk of their their lives right and if this like these institutions right are not saying anything what that sends our youth the wrong message right and 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 that even though there might be a lot of things happening outside the education system like in the nonprofit sector or whatever um are, are you know again how do we make sure that spaces that we're uh, that needs to need that support is also um, those leaders are just you know, um, staffs and folks right are are making space in place for that. And, and then lastly, I've also been hearing this a lot from peers right, and colleagues that they're really all white businesses, uh, like workplaces are right, and businesses like they don't know what to do. and that's just so um, for me, like, Interesting, right? That I've heard over the years, where corporations and so forth like that have been doing diversity training, and and then when it comes to like these really, um, you know, like important time that the workplaces need to respond, like they they're looking right back at the people of color, right, to for the solutions, you know, and it doesn't feel good, and so um, I, I think that. I think that. Um, lastly, my youth manager was just telling me that if we are able to pass ethnic studies, right, it, it would impact a generation of young people, and not just like young BIPOC people, but like making sure that white young students actually do take those courses, right, so that we can start start as young as you know as as young as possible, right, because those are the future like for example young white people are going to inherit all of those wealth right and 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 they could they could be anti-racist from the get go right um, and we can do a lot of internal you know working on internalized racism a lot earlier too right
0: yeah i mean kids growing up like like you were saying jennifer your your 6 year old knows more about racism and and how to be anti-racist than a lot of adults you know and I don't have kids, but I have lots of nieces and nephews, and I think it, it broke my heart to to hear an, you know, an eight year old, um, Asian white child say, "I'm glad I look more white than I look Asian." It's like, you know, you shouldn't have to think that when you're eight years old. How do you raise anti racist children? It, it takes a
1: lot of work. <laughs> um, I I'm very grateful that her daycare is open to us having these conversations too. They've been really good at, like, reinforcing the things that I teach her. Um, So that's a huge piece. Like, the curriculum needs to incorporate that, too, um, where we talk about all of our culture and, like, the beauty of all of our differences. And she's fortunate enough to have other API classmates with her, so she's not the only one. Um, But really just making sure that we talk about it all the time. Like, you know, I had to explain to her, like, you know, when police get called on, Or when the people call the police on us, people, our skin color, we have to be careful. And just like giving her those life lessons and explaining to her when she talks about wanting to exclude someone and explaining how that could be harmful and and how it's not nice to do that. So just very simple things that you teach at a young age will really develop important life skills of just being a human being.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the same as with my daughter. We, um, She's been going to like Black Lives Matter protests since 2016. So she was like not quite two when she started. And so it's just like a lot of like constant conversations and um, reading a lot of books. There are a lot of really good books out there. Um, my mom works at a children's bookstore. So we get a lot of good, good books that we read and talk about um, and then this last summer, there was like a children's march after the murder of George Floyd. And I talked with my daughter, Imogene, and she she wrote her own protest signs. And so since it was her own words and her own thoughts, I framed them and they're hanging in my house so that she has like this reminder that she showed up for somebody else in that way. So, but yeah, just a lot of like conversations constantly about how our words or our actions can impact other people.
0: I love that. I love it. And also, you know, it makes me think of uh, a photo, of the, of a throwback photo that my sister shared of my nephew at, at a rally and just teaching our boys, you know, to, to respect the, the women in their lives and the women that they come across is so important when we talk about this as well. Uh, I, I, I I can talk to you guys forever. Um, you know what this, this session I was kind of like really anxious about this because I've just been really anxious lately for everything like waking up really anxious and everything and I this has been very healing for me. I'm not gonna cry again. Oh my god. This has been very healing for me to, to be here with with you guys and just talk with you guys and I want to thank you for for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we appreciate you. (laughs) I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories, and I want to thank all of our guests for being here. I'm Jennifer Nguyen-Moore. I'm Megan Boyle. I'm Linda Lelazer. Thanks for joining us. This is Counter Stories. This program is a co-production of The Counter Stories Crew, The Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Haley Lee with our special guests, Jennifer Newman-Moore, Megan Boyle, and Linda Herr. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.